You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Further developments in the in-controller Pipe Dream industrial control system threat. Conti claims responsible for the Nordex hack. The half a billion stolen from Ronin went to the Lazarus Group. Betsy Carmelite from Booz Allen Hamilton shares insights on the cyber implications of the conflict in Ukraine. Our guest is Ian McShane from Arctic Wolf. And indictments in a case of influence operations. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 15th, 2022. E&E News reports that it seems clearer that the ICS-focused tools, now generally attributed unofficially to Russia, were designed with the energy sector and particularly liquefied natural gas facilities as their targets. We've received a number of comments from industry on the discovery of the attack kit being called In Controller by Mandiant or Pipe Dream by Dragos. The unusually large number of industrial control system advisories that CISA released yesterday seems a partial response to this recently discovered threat. Bleeping Computer reports that the Conti gang has claimed responsibility for the ransomware attack on wind turbine manufacturer Nordex. Conti had long been the leading suspect in the incident. In related news, Istanbul-based security firm Infinitum IT says it's determined that the data extortion operation Karakurt is really just an arm of the Conti gang. They were able to track the activities of one gang member, and that led them to other evidence that suggests the distinction between Conti and Karakurt is really a distinction without a difference. Karakurt's activities have been confined to the second half of double extortion. They steal data. They don't encrypt it. Having attributed the $540 million theft from DeFi platform Ronin to North Korea's Lazarus Group, The U.S. Treasury Department has updated its North Korean entries on OFAC's list of sanctioned persons and organizations. The record reports that blockchain researchers at PeckShield have been laundering the rough Ethereum equivalent of $9 million every two or three days for the past several weeks, moving funds from the wallet where they held their take. 
Only about 7.5% of their take seems to have been laundered by the end of last week. The Lazarus Group is thought to be using the cryptocurrency mixer Tornado Cash to move its funds. And finally, the U.S. has indicted three Russian nationals on connection with a long-running influence operation. A Russian legislator and two of his staffers face U.S. federal charges connected to sanctions evasion and illegal influence operations. The U.S. Department of Justice has unsealed an indictment filed with the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York that alleges three violations of federal law. One count of conspiring to have a U.S. citizen act as a Russian agent in the United States without notifying the attorney general. One count of conspiring to violate and evade U.S. sanctions in violation of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And one count of conspiring to commit visa fraud. The activities the trio are charged with have none of the high-spy drama one would associate with the recruitment of agents of influence. There's nothing particularly lurid in the Justice Department's account of what they are alleged to have done. They sought meetings with members of Congress, for example, offered free trips, all expenses paid, to receive an award. They wrote letters. They sought to arrange meetings with the Prime Minister of Crimea, someone who in the official U.S. view doesn't really exist. The Congress members are said to have turned them down at all points. The influence operation is alleged to have run from 2012 through 2017. None of the three gentlemen charged are in custody, but the indictment will limit their travels to countries without effective extradition treaties with the U.S. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
Arctic Wolf Networks recently published their 2022 State of Cybersecurity Report, tracking where security professionals and IT leaders rank themselves, their risk appetite, and their ability to mitigate cybersecurity risks. Ian McShane is field CTO at Arctic Wolf Networks. So I think there's three things that are really interesting to me. I think, firstly, the kind of confirmation that information security or cybersecurity is really financially driven. And that might seem like an obvious statement, but what I mean by that is that, you know, while uh, defenders or operators or um, practitioners, they might be in it for for the security, you know, to do some good or to disrupt uh, adversaries. Really, what it comes down to for businesses and organizations is how they can balance that, that fiscal spend against the risk. You know, they don't want their wallets to hurt. And so what they really need to understand is how is the trade-off going to work from investing here or not investing here? What are the other things uh, that drew your attention? Yeah, the second one is is around cloud security, right? And it's been no surprise for the last decade or so that cloud security adoption's on the up. But what was interesting in this survey is that around 20% have, um, only around 20% have serious kind of security monitoring for the clouds. Uh, 28% of our respondents actually said it's their biggest concern. So that's a relatively small number of people that think it's concerning and a relatively small number of organizations that are able to do something about it. But when we look at the the kind of incidents that we investigate at Arctic Wolf, almost half of them uh, include some kind of cloud asset touchpoint. So that was an interesting statistic there as well. What do you suppose is driving that disconnect? Is is it a matter of not having resources to come at this? Or what do you suspect is going on? I think there's a number of issues. The biggest one is probably not fully understanding the the shared security responsibility model that a lot of clouds infrastructure certainly uh, has. So it's no surprise over the last few years that a lot of breaches that involve cloud assets linked to misconfiguration or you know people leaving the default setting, the default um, uh, security configuration in place, and then allowing that to be exploited. So I think if organizations are, are trying to abstract their infrastructure, they also have this kind of implicit trust in the provider, which isn't necessarily the right thing to have. Well, let's uh, move on to the third thing then. You, you mentioned three. What was the third one that caught your eye? Well, the third one, and this has been a big topic for a couple of years now, is that you know staffing, when we see three quarters of organizations saying they don't have enough people. That's no surprise. Um, But it's something that's really impacting their ability to achieve their their security objectives or to meet their security objectives. And so what's interesting is when you look through the responses that a lot of them are saying they don't, it's not only lacking the ability to bring people in, you know, it's lacking the ability to keep people in their organization already. You know, we're seeing this kind of musical chairs or, or great resignation, as it's been called, where some organizations are able to attract new people and not able to maintain the current level of, um, of staffing that they have. Do you have any sense for what could be done to turn that around? I mean, is it, it, it strikes me that a lot of organizations expect folks to come in sort of fully baked and ready to go and that there's a lack of internal training and, and real pathways for learning. Yeah, you've got it. Like companies are really keen to hire people that they expect to hit the ground running, right? Have an instant impact rather than looking for people maybe with fewer years of experience who can, who can learn on the job. I think the reality is that many of the, the most experienced people, you know, the ones that would tick the, in air quotes, unicorn or rock star kind of um, checkbox that a lot of organizations look for, they've realized that their skills can not only command a premium, but, you know, they're um, able to pick and choose their roles more than ever. 
So while some might relish mm. the challenge of picking up and helping to, to modernize a, a struggling security practice, others, other experienced professionals might you know, want to get back to cutting edge security rather than spending months and years getting back to basics. So what are your recommendations then? I mean, based on the information that you've gathered here, uh, what advice do you have for organizations looking to protect themselves? Yeah, I think it comes around to spending. Right, We talked about um, the fiscal side of things and we've talked about the, the human side of things. But the, I guess the way I see it is that organizations we know are definitely spending more than ever on cybersecurity. But honestly, a lot of that spending is focused more on the tools than it is on the, the actual human operators. And when, when infrastructure scope expands, you know, things like cloud adoption and growth and remote working and globalization, so does the, the volume of the work that has to be done. Um, alert fatigue is talked about a lot, right? But that's not the only issue that's affecting staff. It's the inability to be able to do enough tactically and strategically to keep their security ship afloat. And I think a lot of frontline staff, uh, practitioners and operators are asking why more isn't being spent where it's needed, which is, which is in the people. And I don't think that means an increase in spending. Um, I often recommend that most organizations can actually benefit from an audit of what they already spend on toolings and, and ask themselves some, I guess, some pretty tough questions like, am I using this to the best of its ability? And, and what would happen if I stopped using this? Because when organizations can have you know, 20, 30, 40 upwards uh, security tools, there's usually significantly more value in having that honest audit and a project to calculate the benefit of having an additional human or two versus continuing to, to subscribe to or use semi-effective security tools. That's Ian McShane from Arctic Wolf Networks. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Betsy Carmelite. She's a senior associate at Booz Allen Hamilton and Federal Attack Surface Reduction Lead. Betsy, it's always great to have you back on the show. I want to touch base with you on the situation in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion, and your take on what you and your colleagues are, are tracking when it comes to the situation as it affects cybersecurity. Sure, Dave, and thanks. It's great to be back. We all know that last week, President Biden made the statement that Russia may be exploring options for potential cyber attacks against the U.S. Um, surrounding the situation um, with the hostilities in Ukraine. Then we saw in response, the Kremlin spokesperson Peskov telling reporters that the Russian Federation doesn't engage in banditry, uh, outright rejecting the warning. And then in addition, we saw CISA gather 
critical infrastructure partners in a public meeting, asking them to respond to the Shields Up call for guarding themselves against potential cyber attacks. So with all that in mind, what we are doing is looking at what is happening around potential cyber attacks from Russia through a logical framework to Mm. Russian military cyber operations. And as a firm, we've done quite a bit of research in this area and released a report recently about uncovering the logic behind Russian military cyber operations. Well, can you take us through that? What does that framework look like? Sure. So we're looking at the methods and philosophy behind Russian military cyber operations, which align historically to Russia's cyber operations timing, target selection, tactical characteristics with Russian military doctrine. Considering that framework, uh, Russia may engage its cyber capabilities to respond really to its evolving strategic military initiatives. Russia's military is a leading user of offensive cyber weapons that deny, degrade, disrupt, destroy. And really, we see that Russia uses these operations quite logically to respond to specific declared circumstances that impact their national security in ways consistent with that published doctrine. You know, I I think a lot of folks have been left scratching their heads that we haven't seen more from Russia when it comes to offensive cyber in this particular campaign. Uh, Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I think that is really the big question. Uh, When are we going to see cyber in all of this? Uh, When are we going to see that big not Petya-like attack again? And in in looking at the situation, what we've what we really feel is that there's there's a lot of fog of war around this situation cyberwise. There are lots of actors, there are lots of operations. Uh, we see volunteer cyber actors. It, really, like who is doing what? So um, it's really difficult right now to say comprehensively what is happening. So what I wanted to focus on was pointing back to our Russian military cyber operations report we can specifically look at how there is a fundamental connection between GRU, which is the main intelligence directorate in the Russian military, GRU-attributed cyber activity, and the GRU's mission to monitor, neutralize, and counter certain publicly enumerated circumstances. So if we're seeing something, if Russia's seeing something that endangers its military security, the, the GRU executes its mission using methods consistent with declared strategic concepts. We also recently saw the Washington Post come out with a report saying that the attack on Ukrainian satellites was probably attributed to the GRU. So we're seeing that action and reaction as a direct threat to Russian national security interests. So is it fair to say that, you know, because just because we haven't seen much activity on this front so far that we we should not have our defenses down, that uh, it may be yet to come? That's right. That's right. Um, one, one of the ways to protect yourself around this type of situation is really understanding the the context in which this threat operates and and what are what are really some of the historical actions it's taken um, and how would how would an attack against your organization advance your adversary's interests advance 
you know, possibly Russia's interests with security strategies tailored to that understanding. So we look at that through a threat-centric risk management process, first creating an organizational profile, um, understanding your locations, partners, customers, information you possess, and so forth. And then you consider your, your potential adversaries. Once you've established some of those parameters, I would say two of the best things you can do for your risk management strategies and activities are using threat intelligence and looking at implementing internal and external threat hunts focused on expected adversaries. All right. Well, stay vigilant for sure. Uh, Betsy Carmelite, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Symantec's Alan Neville. We're going to be discussing Antlion, the Chinese state-backed hackers using custom backdoors to target financial institutions in Taiwan. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.